The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Okay, this week on our podcast, we have um, one of our first repeat guests. His name is Dave Rosenberg, better known as Rosie. I know him from back in the days when he was Merrill Lynch's chief economist and a raging bear a couple of years early, but ultimately proven to be right. Um, One of the things I found fascinating about Dave is that in 2013, um, or, or earlier, he flipped to the bullish side after having been somewhat cautious coming out of the uh, financial crisis, and people kicked and screamed, Dave the Bear, how can you go bullish? And he said the, the data proved it, I, so I have to go bullish. So I've always respected that, hey, this position is wrong and I can't stay this way, I'm going to reverse myself. Not a lot of people on Wall Street um, do that very comfortably. The other reason I wanted to bring Dave back was we both presented at a conference this weekend, and I saw him on a panel. I mean, we hung out and chatted a bit, but I saw him on a panel with three other people, and he hinted at some of his views on the Fed and the economy and non-farm payrolls and inflation and, and what we're looking at in the markets. And it was really just a taste, and I wanted to sit down and have the full meal. For those of you who are interested in economic data, I don't even know how else to describe this. Dave is an idiot savant with data in a way that few economists can. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of how all these different moving parts interact. We didn't really talk about um, random dates, but uh, we've had dinner in the past where I said, you know, February 2003, he's like, oh, yeah, non-farm payroll was uh, 14,000 that month. Not a great month. The guy is a walking encyclopedia and understands how to put it into context and what it means uh, to both the economy and the stock market. If you like economics, if you like that sort of data analysis, I think you're going to find this to be a fascinating, albeit wonky conversation. Um, so without any further ado, here is my chat with David Rosenberg. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week... David Rosenberg. You might know him from when he was chief economist of Merrill Lynch. He's currently chief market strategist and chief economist at Gluskin Chef out of Toronto, New York. Dave, welcome to Bloomberg. Good to be back, Barry. So let me tell you why I'm having Dave on for a second time. You are one of the few repeat guests. The previous repeat guest was some guy named Arthur Levitt, who was chairman of the SEC. But other than him, you're the first repeat guest. I think I think I was your first guest. What you almost two years ago, you were one of, if not the very first guest that we recorded with. We had done a few dry runs and then we brought you in and I think you were the first guest that we actually recorded and used the podcast of. I think I heard you tell somebody, uh, Rosie's my guinea pig. That's right. That's exactly right. So um, let me tell you why I brought you back, not to be a guinea pig, 
Uh, Dave and I were at a conference this past weekend in Miami, Florida. I gave a presentation on risk. Dave gave a presentation, as he usually does, on the state of the economy, and it's a holistic, every data point you could think of put into really interesting context. And when I sat through a panel that Dave was on with four people, my thoughts were, I want to hear more of what Dave has to say about where we are in the state of the economy, talk about non-farm payroll, talk about the Fed, talk about what this means for investors, interest rates, talk about the economic profession, and I didn't get enough Dave. So I said, Dave, why don't you come on the show this week and we'll spend some time. This is really the most fascinating time to be an economist um, following last week's non-farm payrolls and all the uh, angst, storm uh, and drang over the Fed. So let, let's have at it. Let's jump right into this. Last week, we saw a huge non-farm payrolls report, 271,000 new jobs created, unemployment rate effectively cut in half from the financial crisis peak. What does this mean for global economy? What does this mean for the Fed? Let, let's start out simple and say, what does this new payroll report mean for the U.S. economy? Well, I think that it needs a little bit of context. Fire away. Well, if you remember, uh, before we got the October payroll number, just over a month ago, we also got the September number, which at that point was putrid. Right, mediocre no, number, No wage growth, uh, apparently validating the Fed's no move in September. And actually, I started hearing people talking about the prospect of a recession. Now, now let me let me interrupt you right there. Because I know I, I've been reading Breakfast with Dave for a million years. That's Dave's daily uh, market and economic commentary. When I was writing it for T-Rex, you mean. That, that's right, exactly right. The the usual indicia of recession that you track, what do you see along those lines? Okay, well, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to the recession indicators. I mean, a, we, we, can, we can debate whether the economy slows down or speeds up next year. I think a recession... Uh, is probably as close to 0% odds as anything in this world can Nothing be. Nothing imminent, not seeing any signs. No, not, not, not at all. But the point I was making when I said about the perspective or the context of the October payroll number, which was actually one of the best employment numbers of the cycle, uh, was you have to take a look at it in the context of uh, what we saw in September, uh, and the truth, as usual, is somewhere in the middle. I think that uh, the Wait, uh, the, angst, say, the angst the well, let's finish the angst after the September number was overdone. I think maybe a bit of the euphoria uh, after the October number could be a little overdone. I think that um, it just validates the view that the U.S. economy is doing okay, maybe a little bit better than okay. To me, what really stood out was this. Uh, the view that uh, this combination of a super strong U.S. dollar uh, and the weakness that we're seeing in various parts of the world, uh, particularly emerging markets, was going to come back and uh, push the manufacturing sector into a downturn that would then cause a generalized malaise in the economy. Well, the reality is that that view has so far been proven to have been wrong because we didn't have any manufacturing jobs created last month, and yet None. somehow, and yet somehow, an economy that is actually driven in part by construction, you can say in part by government, certainly it's a service sector economy outside of manufacturing, uh, still generated, as you said, Barry, 271,000 net new jobs. Then there's been all the narrative 
Well, I would say for the past year uh, that the downdraft in oil was a net negative for the U.S. economy, that it was going to uh, destroy the Montanas, the Dakotas, Texas, and just bring down the U.S. economy because apparently over a five-year period, all the jobs that were created was in shale. Well, once again, <laughs> we had uh, a month where no growth in manufacturing. Uh, the resource sector actually had a fractionally negative uh, job uh, market performance. And the economy, what do you know, generated 271,000 net new jobs. So I think what's happening is that the fallacy uh, that the strong dollar and the weaker emerging markets were going to bring the U.S. economy to its knees. Uh, right now, we're putting the rat in the uh, laboratory. That thesis is being proven wrong. I'm quite actually content with that. And the view that the shale uh, contraction was going to create uh, a major domino effect through the economy uh, has been proven wrong as well. So in the last 30 seconds we have in this segment, you, you alluded to something earlier, and I want to give you a chance to, to expound on it. Uh, employment data, it's a fairly noisy series, isn't it? Well, you know, it's interesting. The household survey is certainly volatile. The payroll survey tends to be more stable, which is why the markets have already paid more attention to it. But it has been a little bit more jumpy, which is why always any economist will tell you, focus on the three-month, six-month, even the 12-month trend. The data are telling you that the economy is in decent shape, full stop. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week, David Rosenberg. He is the chief economist and strategist at Gluskin Chef. We were talking earlier about the uh, non-farm payrolls data and how sometimes that series can be a little bit uh, noisy, especially the household survey. What does that mean for the Fed that is, quote-unquote, data-driven? I think the Fed has already laid down its cards, and even the doves uh, are running for cover. So um, my sense now is that uh, the Fed uh, took a pass in September, primarily because of uh, the global uh, turmoil and uh, why acute, is that? acute market volatility. Why is that? Why do we think that emerging market uh, downturn in the Shanghai index, why should that impact the Fed? No, no, no. Well, it wasn't just uh, the Shanghai index at that point. I mean, you had a situation where credit spreads in the U.S. were widening dramatically. Uh, you had a situation where uh, over half the stock market was down at least 20% from the highs. So Basically, what had happened at that point was we had a major tightening in domestic financial conditions, and so the mm -hmm. Fed went to the sidelines. You know, look, reality is this. Uh, you know, we tend to get a little myopic in the marketplace. I'm a market participant. Uh, they do have eight meetings a year, uh, so they took a pass. Um, the economy is in fine shape. The bottom line here is the desperate desire by the Fed to move off of zero. That's what this is all about move off of zero. Normalizing rates. Just as we don't need QE anymore, they ended QE. And once again, let's attack the narrative. The narrative was that as soon as they ended QE, which was October of last year, the economy was going to crumble, go down to its knees. They ended QE. No such thing happened. Round enough, you go back to when Yellen was telling us what the time lag was uh, between the end of QE and the first rate hike. She inadvertently had mentioned six months. Mm -hmm. Well, my good friend, Barry, it's already been more than a year. So you know what? It's high time to move off of zero. And at the same time, when it comes to December 16th, and they probably will at this point raise rates, uh, it's what they say that's going to matter. And they will continue to uh, reaffirm the view that this is not going to be your big brothers, your fathers, or your grandfather's tidy cycle. It's going to be truncated. They could easily signal that, not that they're one and done, 
but they're going to move and then pause and assess so that this is not going to be the Fed of old when it became a, an exercise of eating potato chips. You just can't stop at one. 2005, 2006, 2007, we saw once the rate tightening cycle began, it was pretty much straight up and right into the teeth of a recession. Same thing in 99, 2000. This is a very different cycle, low and slow. Is that the uh... big difference, Barry? Uh, you go back to the, uh, you know, you, you go back to look in 1994. Uh, you did have a, a a big inflation problem that had to be uh, circumvented. Uh, you go back to the late 1990s. We had a tech bubble that the Fed had to get ahead of. Uh, you go back to that period. You're quite right. Look, 2004, they start to raise rates. They went from one percent to five and a quarter in two years, and not the most ardent. Hawk or Bond Bear saw that coming, um, but the Fed had a big bubble on its hands. It was the housing and credit bubble. I'm looking around trying to find where the bubble is. There might be little pockets of bubbles here and there, but nothing and certainly no inflation bubble just yet to cause the Fed to have to raise rates at every single meeting. So my sense is that they raise, they reaffirm this notion lower for longer, uh, and, um, and we'll take it from there. But what I will say is this, it comes back to your question about the recession. Recessions have never started after the first rate hike. The recessions start after the last rate hike. So if you're worried about the rate hike December 16th, then sure, there'll be more volatility. We're going to stress test liquidity in the bond market. No question about that. You might want to have a little more cash on hand going into next year for optionality purposes. It doesn't mean that it's the end of the cycle. The cycle ends every time after the last rate hike, because it's the last rate hike that ultimately brings the economy to its knees. So if that's your view, then you have to believe that the first rate hike uh, is going to be the last rate hike. And I don't believe that for a second. So let's take the other side of the trade. What happens if they don't hike in December? What sort of a signal does that send? What are the implications? Well, if they don't hike in, if they don't hike on December 16th, I'm nervous. And I'll tell you why. And it's not because of what happens on December 16th. It's that something happened in the lead up to December 16th that caused them not to raise rates. So basically, the picture you're painting, Barry, is that uh, is a repeat of what caused them to go on the sidelines in September, which is that we have, once again, a major tightening of financial conditions. Uh, so stock market, correction, widening spreads, or something nefarious is happening because they are right now, once again, setting the table for us if they don't follow through, they suffer a credibility problem. Uh, if they don't follow through, barring a credibility problem, it's because something else happened along the way that if you're long risk is not going to make you too happy. It's going to make people think, what do they know? That What are they seeing that I'm not seeing? I'm well, no, I don't. I, well, you know, the thing is that that's what people were saying in September. But the reality is that it's not what do they see? We don't know. We know what we know, which is that half the stock market was down 20% and, and credit spreads were widening inexorably. So the fact is the fact is that some people thought that the Fed was just going to look through that tightening of financial conditions and still raise rates. But the reality is that they didn't look through that tightening of financial conditions. They weren't sure if things were going to subside or not. Well, they have subsided. Now the prospect of the first rate hike in nine years is on the table. If they don't move at this stage, look, they, they, they basically have set the bar very low. Uh, it's not as if things have to get better. They just don't have to get worse, mm -hmm. and they are going to raise rates. But if we have another, are they going to go to twenty five? Are they going to go to fifty? Because so we're really at, well, we're like, in a range. Well, well, now. it's we're, look, they look, look. People are talking; they can go an eighth. I mean, we're we're in a range. Look, there's other mechanisms. Also, what do they do with the uh, uh, with the interest rate and excess reserves? Uh, you know, we're we're in a whole new realm of healthy operate monetary policy. But my sense is that 
if we're talking about my view on what it will mean for basis point impact, mm -hmm. it's probably going to be 25 basis points. All right. And we didn't really get to talk about uh, earnings yet. Since the financial crisis lows, we've seen earnings rise over 100% from their bottom and stocks have risen over 200%. You mentioned energy before. What are you looking at in terms of this so-called earnings recession driven by energy? Barry, you have earnings contractions in about half the market, earnings positive in half the market. Uh, it's been a very idiosyncratic, stock-specific, um, sector selection market this year. It's not been a market that you buy the index. The bottom line is that uh, stay away from the areas uh, that have excess valuation that are hitched to the foreign economy that are vulnerable to the U.S. dollar. The bottom line is that for all the talk of what a bad market it's been this year in earnings recession, the best performing sector is consumer discretionary, over 10% capital appreciation this year, over 10% earnings growth. Now, I understand that consumer discretionary might be between 10 and 20% of the S&P market cap, but it represents 70% of GDP. How bad can things possibly be when consumer cyclicals are seeing 10% plus earnings growth and 10% price appreciation all in the same year? I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week, David Rosenberg. He is the chief economist and strategist at Gluskin Chef in Toronto, Canada, and pretty much around the world. And previously, we were discussing um, the energy contraction. The, we've had a huge drop in oil prices. Let's talk a little bit about commodities. Copper cut in half, oil cut in half. A lot of the industrial metals, iron, zinc, doing really poorly. Now, a generation ago, that would be a warning from Dr. Copper that a recession is coming. But you're saying there's no sign of a recession on the horizon. What does it mean that the various um, commodities are getting gobsmacked like this? Well, you know, I, I never would have said that copper price alone would have signaled a recession. Every recession has been presaged by one thing and one thing only, which is an inversion of the yield curve, uh, full stop. So, I'm not so sure that uh, you can look at the price of anything uh, and just say it's demand contraction. Every price is determined by two lines where they intersect, which is supply and demand. And so it's interesting, you talk about oil, for example, uh, throughout this, say, 70% collapse in the oil price, global demand has just gone up. Mm -hmm. Bottom line is just we're printing too much oil. The, the swing producer, the, the Saudis told the Americans a year ago, you're the swing producer, not right. us. Shale, America, you are the swing producer. We have given that up. Every single bottom in the oil price, 1986, go back to 1991, go to 1999, go to 2002, go to 2009. It was always the Saudis leading OPEC. In fact, you just go back to 2009, who cut output from 10 million to 3 million barrels a day were the Saudis. The Saudis told the shale guys in the U.S., you are now the swing producer, were out of that business. And then throughout that, and despite that, going into last summer when oil was hitting its lows, and right now we're putting in a bottoming process, mm -hmm. American producers were still producing 500,000 barrels a day more in the summer than they were last November. So, um, so we're yeah, swimming my sense, in oil. So we have my plenty sense, of supply. Okay, look, and you look at the contango, 
Mm-hmm. You look at the inventories. Explain, and could, explain contango for the layperson who doesn't understand backwardization or, or contango. Well, just looking at uh, you know the fact that the forward curve is positively steep. So it's telling you in terms of the near-term pricing that there's still some supply pressure putting some uh, downward impact on the spot price of oil. Short term, but longer Sh- term you expect longer Longer term, prices. well, I, I think that, look, when you're taking a look at the rig count and the types of rigs that are now being shuttered as opposed to the type that were the inefficient ones being shuttered, say, six months ago, uh, the fact that drilling and exploration activity is down over the past year in the U.S. by 60%. That's huge. And there, well, every time this happened in the past, oil is put in a bottom. We're just not going to get a V-shaped recovery. But I think oil is putting in a bottoming formation. It's, it's not, you know, the next time you get towards 60 this fracking revolution, the technology is so sophisticated that it's not going to take much to really trigger the output. So I think we're in a broad forty to sixty dollar range. I'm not in the view that we're going down to thirty, barring a global collapse in demand or or a recession. Near term, prices will remain weak. I think that within a year, I think there will be opportunities. I think there will actually be another run towards sixty. It'll be temporary and it'll be a trade. Energy is a trade. Commodities are a trade. They're not an investment. The 12-year super cycle, courtesy of China, is really yesterday's story. If you're going to play the next super cycle out of China, you're going to be playing services, okay? Because that's where their economy is gravitating to. They're gravitating away from industrialization, away from exports, towards consumer spending, mostly on services. So that's the new super cycle, uh, internet services, media services, education services, health services. The, The service sector side of the... Chinese economy that apparently people are telling me is crashing and burning because people just tend to look at commodities and manufacturing Mm -hmm. diffusion indices, which give you a very small snapshot. For the first time in China's modern history, service sector accounts for over half of their GDP. The service sector in China- Repeat that. The the service service sector sector is now, and it's growing. Um, Consumer spending in China accounted for almost 60% of the overall growth they generated. This is not the China. People, you see, people are just, they take the latest experience and they extrapolate in the future. The new super cycle is consumer spending and consumer spending on services. If I'm not mistaken, we just printed, what was it? Like a 12% year-over-year mm-hmm. retail sales number in China. The U.S. hasn't printed a number like that in, in almost three decades. And, and somehow China's crashing and burning. Look, China's got, they've got, le- they do have leverage problems. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're still liberalizing. Uh, it is a uh, it's a it's it's a work in pro in in in, pr- in process, but the reality is that uh, as Alibaba showed you a few weeks ago with their blowout earnings, mm-hmm. that if you're playing China in the future, it's not the Alcoas and it's not the John Deere's and it's not the Caterpillars. It's who are the global champions that will penetrate. If I would have said to you five years ago, Dave, the Fed's going to take rates to zero and keep them there for five years. We're going to do three rounds of quantitative easing, and five years from now, you're going to have no inflation and the dollar at multi-year highs. What what would you say to that sort of forecast? Well, I, I would have said that um, maybe if you wanted to figure that out, you'd read the Rogoff Reinhardt classic, or mm-hmm. you'd read the work of this time uh, from McKinsey. Well, this time it's different. So. The bottom line is that when you go back centuries of uh, of recessions that are not classic inventory cycles, but are credit part in process, credit mm-hmm. and an implosion of asset values, this is what happens. If you want to take the most, uh, I think, uh, you know, dramatic uh, example, go back to the 1930s. Okay, now look, we don't have 30% of the people living on the land. We didn't have a dust bowl. We actually... Um, you know, actually have de- deposit insurance and we have unemployment insurance. We have a social safety net. 
Um, I'm sure that without all that, it would have been practically just as bad. Uh, we didn't let every single bank fail. We didn't have a massive run on banks, despite the fact that some institutions were allowed to falter. So the bottom line is that when you take a look at the history of financial crises of this magnitude, yeah, you drop interest rates to zero, you keep them there for a long time, uh, and um, the only reason why the central banks, well, let's just take the Fed as an example, had to do as much as it did was because fiscal policy was so ineffective. Or, or non-existent. It was very little compared to what I think Look, some people, like your buddy Paul Barry, Krugman, wanted to no, do. No, Barry, Barry, you know, the, the sad reality is that our politicians created so many roadblocks in the U.S. unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, look, I'm from Canada. You know, we have socialized health care there. But to really invoke a complicated health care plan, because you couldn't get it done uh, when Hillary was in the White House uh, back in the early 90s. And this wasn't even about President Obama. This is more Pelosi and Reid. And I'm not going to discuss the social fairness of this, but to enact legislation that's so complicated that froze the small business sector in time literally two years after the capital markets and the housing market detonated. Bad timing. That delayed the recovery. Then we had to basically swing the pendulum the other way. We had libertarians running the Fed. Uh, we built the Wild West in the financial markets and the sheriff left town. So then what do we do in this cycle? Swing the pendulum between Basel III, the Volcker Rule, Dodd-Frank. So we basically now are regulating the banks like utilities. And so every step of the way, we haven't even been able to pass a budget. The government's been operating on continuing resolutions so that every few years, what do we have? The risk of a government shutdown and, and debt default that again causes businesses. I'd rather just buy back my stock, thank you very much, than issue debt to actually commit capital to an economy where there's basically no fiscal visibility. So that's been a big part of the problem is that you did not have the utopia, which would have been fiscal policy working with monetary policy. We have Larry Summers, who now has been saying for a while that we're in secular stagnation. He was the one telling President Obama, if I'm not mistaken, to go targeted and timely and transitory with the fiscal response, the infrastructure spending that never went anywhere. The president should have gone big. He had a big tailwind mm -hmm. behind his back. He should have gone really big back then towards a real new deal to get the economy moving. The fiscal response was tepid, and it put all the burden of responsibility on monetary policy. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today, Gluskin Chef's David Rosenberg. He is their chief economist and market strategist, operating out of Toronto and worldwide. You know, every time I speak to you, Dave, you're in a different part of the world. How many countries are you in a year? You, you travel less than you used to, but you're still all over Europe and, and elsewhere. Well, I'm actually going with our investment team to uh, Macau and Hong Kong at the end of the month. Uh, but mostly, like most of our business is in Canada and the States. So uh, I, I don't do the, the European and Asian road shows like I used to. But you're back uh, in, in, the, in the U.S., uh, you know, uh, a good chunk of our business, at least 10% is in the States. And used to, when you were with Merrill Lynch, you used to be around the world pretty regularly. You were a, quite the globetrotter. My friend, I think I was either uh, platinum, gold, or silver on, on six different airlines <laughs> back when we used to have six different airlines. That's right. All right, so let's talk a little bit about, about economics, not the economy, but economics and the economics profession. And one of the questions that came up at the conference we were both at were forecasting the uh, economy into the forward year. 
And I want to. I don't want to ask you what your forecast is. I want to ask you a, a more philosophical question, which is why is forecasting so difficult? What makes thinking about and projecting the markets and the economy forward a year all but impossible? Well, firstly, there's there's always a certain level of uncertainty around uh, your forecast. It's like Yogi Berra famously said, uh, uh, making forecasts uh, is very difficult, especially when it comes to predicting the future. Mm-hmm. So there's always a certain level of uncertainty, and I'll get into that in a second. I, I think also we live in a uh, in a very fast money world and a world where uh, you have to pay attention to geopolitics more than you used to before, uh, and it's just... Um, you know, the information gets transmitted much more quickly. There, I mean, it's incredible that sometimes you get moves that in the old days, well, you'd get in a year, can actually happen in like a week now. And and look, the onset of program trading and all the electronics and that go along with that. Let me just say this. Um, if I had to present a forecast today, like I used to when I was on the sell side at Merrill and before that Bank of Montreal, Bank of Nova Scotia, after six years on uh, the buy side of Gluskin Chef, sitting down 24-7 with our portfolio managers, I finally figured out. I used to, I used to think, you know, when you're chief economist to Merrill Lynch, you, you, you think that you're like the starting pitcher of the New York Yankees. You have it all figured out. I realized when I got to Gluskin Chef how much I didn't know. And it was a revelation I had in my first meeting when I gave a particular forecast and the portfolio manager I forget what it was exactly, he said, so how much conviction do you have in that call? And I said, what? Well, he said, well, certainly, you know, you don't have, it's not 100% ironclad. What is your conviction level? And then what scenario B, C, or D? If you're going to be wrong, where are you going to be wrong? So you see, if you're managing money for a living, if you are an investor, portfolio manager, your whole world is one giant probability curve. And the economist's job is not to get the base case right. It's to help the investor make an informed decision. And that comes down to helping tighten in the probability bands. So I will go to a meeting today at Gluskin Chef where basically I will have the same base case forecast, but I'll say, hey, fellas, whereas I used to have 80% conviction, it's down to 65%. Oh, by the way, scenario B is now D and D is now C. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody in the room will be writing down like, They'll be sweating writing down what I'm saying. And I didn't even change my base case scenario. It's all about your conviction level, how that changes over time. And uh, if you're wrong, where are you going to be wrong? What is your, what scenario B, C, or D? Because your forecast, and this is what gets economists into trouble. You know, you read these spreadsheets. You read a daily, you read a weekly, a monthly out of a classic sell-side Wall Street economics house. And you think, well, that GDP growth in the fourth quarter. That's got to be their ironclad. But you don't get to ask them uh, how much confidence you have in that forecast. Or if you're wrong, say you're calling for three, will it be two or will it be four? Uh, and Meaning that you're, you're going to be wrong because it's hotter or wrong because it's colder. You, That's a big difference. You've got the whole life of a portfolio manager. Their brain is one giant distribution curve of outcomes. And the economist role is not to focus just on the base case. It's to focus on the whole range of outcomes. Is it a fat tail curve? 
it is a thin tail curve. And actually sometimes just shifting a your bit. second, your, well, what, what, your, what the next two possibilities are, mm-hmm. it's huge in terms of what that could mean for a portfolio manager. We're, we're discussing fun with Gaussian distribution curves with Dave Rosenberg. I, I love this new or not so new philosophical way of looking at the world from a probabilistic perspective often wrong, seldom in doubt, is the expression that comes to mind about the people on the uh, sell side who are full of conviction, but there is no plan B, there is no distribution. Here's my forecast, right or wrong. Well, that's, um, and that's what gets economists in the hot water, and, and, that's, uh, and that's the bad rap in the profession. That's why if I had to go back to that... Um, I guess, profession of publishing forecasts, which thankfully I don't have to do anymore, I would do it completely differently. I think the other In part what way? is this, how would you how would you do it differently? Well, as, as I said, I, I would I would um, f- I would provide scenarios. I'd attach probabilities and attach scenarios. What's important, once again, you talked about this Bayesian economics. It's actually, mm-hmm. it should be so elementary for economists that actually go through and take statistics, econometrics, we all did this in university, uh, is it's all about expected values. Mm-hmm. It's about across the continuum of possibilities across the distribution curve. What is the reward of being right benchmarked against the cost of being wrong? Spread across that. Um, ultimately, if you're a street economist and uh, whether it's Wall Street, Bay Street, Montgomery Street, House Street, uh, your job is basically as the economist uh, to help portfolio managers make effective decision making. What I like to say at Gluskin Chef is that our portfolio managers are the goalies and I'm the goalie coach. I can't, I can't stop the puck for them. Mm-hmm. They actually are the ones that wear the goals against average. It's their portfolio. Our job as economists, as street economists, uh, in the realm of providing cogent and coherent and cohesive investment advice, is to help uh, portfolio managers stay out of trouble and to make effective decision making. So uh, if I had a new role where I provided forecast, um, they would look like probability curves and, and, and you wouldn't be wed to one particular view, although you would have a base case with a probability attached to it. There's something else that's very important in my profession, which is this. Um, it's admitting when you're wrong. I love that. I have that as a question. How do you as an economist admit error? But you're saying you're building that in. Speaking of errors, here's an economist who's frequently wrong. Richard Yamaron. Rich, pull up a seat and join us for a conversation about why most economists are so terrible at forecasting uh, the markets. Dave, well, just explain what you do wrong as a professional economist. Well, I, I was actually going to say, Rich Yamaron is, is about my best friend in the world, and so I can't possibly... <laughs> it's a good thing he's here, because I would never take a shot at Rich behind his back. I, I know, but I was doing it on your behalf. I know what you were implying about Rich. I only came in because I heard that there were free donuts or something in that, here. That's, that's exactly Barry, right. Barry ate them all. So, so, we were, so we were just discussing looking at economics as a probabilistic dis- distribution as opposed to being all right or all wrong. And much of the Wall Street universe doesn't take that approach. Um, is this a failure of traditional economics or is it just marketing? It's marketing and it's, you know, uh, I guess this human nature of having to be force-fed numbers as opposed to a thought process. But here's what's important, uh, 
as I found out working on the, on the buy side, and, you know, every sell-side firm has an economist. Uh, not every buy-side firm has an economist. I'm pretty sure that in Canada, Gluskin Chef is probably one of the few. It's about scenario building. Uh, and, uh, and, and what happens, I think, with a lot of economists is a certain level of arrogance in your forecast uh, that that is basically the base case, and that's the way it's going to be. Here, I'll just say this much. You cannot marry your forecast. Marry your partner. Don't marry your forecast. It, it will often not love you back. And have a plan B. Have an escape clause in case you're wrong, and have the discipline to admit that you're wrong. And when you admit that you're wrong, because we're human beings and we will be wrong, have the insurance policy in place for the portfolio manager. What's that scenario be that they can flip into when you are going to be wrong? We've been speaking to David Rosenberg. He's the chief economist and market strategist for Gluskin Chef. If you want to find, by the way, more of his writings, you can go to gluskinchef.com. Is that right? That's the website? .com. It's uh, go to just Google Gluskin Chef and uh, you can find the website or Google Breakfast with Dave, which is the daily commentary that Dave Rosenberg puts out. It's my staple. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we let our hair down and keep the tape rolling. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Okay, welcome back to the podcast. My guest today, Dave Rosenberg. We have a special, special guest, Rich Yamarone. He's the chief economist at Bloomberg. What's your title? Best looking economist. Best looking economist. That's a low bar. That's like smartest Bush. Low bar. I say that just to torture Dave. I know he's a uh, huge Jeff. Well, it's all, it's all relative, huh, Rich? That's right. All right, let's do this over again because I'm going to get everybody in trouble with that. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, I'm speaking with Dave Rosenberg, is my special guest this week, my extra special guest. Just dropping in, one of the economists here uh, we keep down in the basement, uh, Rich Yamarone. Say hello to the people, Yamarone. Hello, people. Yamarone. Fantastic. Yammy and Dave are uh, old buddies. They went to uh, economics grammar school together in um, Parts Unknown. Toronto. Uh, Toronto, usually, usually someplace where wine is pouring. Um, so the funny thing about the conversation about traveling, when you and I first met a hundred years ago, you were on the road. I, I want to say two weeks a month, maybe three weeks a month, something crazy like that. Uh, I'd say half the time, a hundred thousand miles a year. Uh, that's, uh, that, that you know, I, I, that could be the under really. Yeah. It was a, uh, look at that job between uh, equities, fixed income, derivatives, commodities, middle markets, uh, the uh, uh, the private client. There were so many constituents to serve uh, that it was uh, crazy. Plus, don't forget, Barry, my uh, my wife and kids were back in Toronto, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, I was um, fr- I was freely available to market twenty four seven. So, wow. and, and with that, look, it was a global firm. They so they treat tra- you like tra- an old mule. You travel, you travel like the globe. Well, look, it was, uh, um, you know, uh, no guts, no glory. So let me ask you a question similar to what I asked our friend Michelle Meyer, who's now a senior economist at Merrill Lynch. and, a, and She's a phenomenal, by the way. Rising star. Phenomenal. Not, not rising star. She's a star. So what is a day in the life 
uh, of a chief economist at a place like Merrill Lynch with 15 or 20,000 advisors and a trillion dollars in assets under management. What time did your day start back then? <laughs> well, my day probably um, is, uh, is an outlier because uh, I did the daily, right. which back then was called uh, Morning Market Memo. Although internally it was called uh, Rosie's uh, Tidbits. Right. Uh, my day uh, started, um, I got up at four in the morning. Four in the morning is four late. In the morning, four in the morning, yeah. Well, it, What time was, are you getting was, up today? If It depends what I was doing the night before. But now you're up, I think you're up about three because I get breakfast with Dave and it looks like it's a couple no. of hours of work and I get that at... You know, before noon. I, well, I, I, I get up at uh, I get up at four thirty, but I've always been well. Firstly, I'm not a very good sleeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, TMI. As I, as I get, maybe that's TMI. Right. Uh, and um, and you sleep in the I'm, nude I'm, as well, I'm, which I'm is a, also TMI. Well, as only you would know. And uh, <laughs> and and yeah, me knows. I've Come always on. been look. I've, al- truth, I've always Rich, been wired. You know. I've always been wired that way as as a, as a morning person. Same here. You know, use alarm clock. You just wake up. You know, it's a you know. I have a uh, real passion for this business. Mm-hmm. And look, you asked before about what's All the what's best change, but it's really uh, the markets don't sleep. And mm-hmm. so uh, therefore I have trouble sleeping. Mm-hmm. So uh, I get up early and um, I've got a lot of stamina and, and a lot of engines. So the reality is that, um, you know, it's not just about, uh, look, your, your work ethic uh, has to be there. I guess you have to have a reasonable level of intelligence. You have to read a lot because uh, it's important to be informed. Some people think that you're smart when all you really do is you read eight newspapers and you know what's going on around in the world. Being informed, though, uh, is an important part um, of what I do. And and then it's a uh, a matter of um, of serving all your constituents. Uh, look, at Glaskin Chef, my most important client are our portfolio managers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sit right out there with them. I don't have to travel around the world to see portfolio managers. I sit next to ours, and I say the most important client uh, because uh, they're the ones that drive the performance of the firm. And then, of course, I see the clients of our firm, which are 90% are wealthy families in mm-hmm. North America. At Merrill Lynch, I mean, uh, the you client, had a million different constituencies well, all over there. the world. Oh yeah, it was just look the most important time. The most important. The most important challenge for me, you know, look, you had to manage up, you had to manage down. I had a big team. I had a team in Toronto and a team in New York. Um, how do you manage but, up? But the, well, how do you manage up is you have to make, I, I, I had multiple bosses that right. I, I had to keep How do you happening. juggle all that? Well, I don't know. Do we do we have all night? Cause, sure. Well, the donuts are gone. So right. uh, so let's let's, let's talk about say, who you have. Who, who look, you? There were, there were, there were, look, you had to make uh, the head of research happy, mm-hmm. and the head of research also had their constituents, which uh, you know they had equity analysts reporting into them. Uh, you had head of fixed income, head of equities. You know, so you had the head of research, and then you had all the producers. Uh, mm-hmm. So look, you had to balance a lot of things. You also had the CEO of Merrill Lynch back when they were a standalone entity. Yeah, I recall the days when you would get called in to. Um, I'm trying to think of which CEO O'Neill you would get called into. Dave, what's this nonsense about uh, this or that? What were those days like? Look, I'll tell you this much, okay? Um, look, I was not a threat to Stan O'Neill, uh, you know, and it's all been written about. Uh, but Stan O'Neill, and the time I was there, and the time that he was there, treated me with the utmost of respect. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you that I was probably in his office once a month, 
and uh, we got along famously well. Um, you know, so we're going into a realm that uh, you know where there's the narrative and there's the reality. Uh, Stan and I got along very well. Uh, you know, after he left, a short period with John Thane, and and we got along well. But I look, I knew Stan O'Neill very well, and look, when he was making money for the firm, and of course he was taking on a lot of risk. Uh, but people would kiss the ring in his finger. Everybody I, loves a and, winner. And so, well, that's what I mean. And then, and then, uh, I, I, I've seen it all. But I'll tell you this: uh, Stan, um, brilliant man, uh, and uh, you can say in quotes, "Well, why did he not listen to Rosie?" And uh, look, it's all uh, behind us now. But the reality is that when you want to, at Merrill Lynch. Uh, start to compete with the Goldman Sachs on ROEs and ROAs, and mm-hmm. half your business is a thundering herd, which is a stable, uh, you know, low PE business. Um, you got to dial up a lot of risk. But I'll tell you this much, and I'll say it for the record: uh, my relationship with Stan O'Neill was phenomenal, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he treated me with respect, whether he agreed with me and uh, clearly he disagreed with my view. We weren't positioned for my view. That's a different matter because uh, people could also say that I was wrong and I was way early on the call. Uh, but Stan, every step of the way, treated me with utmost respect. Coming up next week, we interview Stan O'Neill and find the real story about the relationship with Dave and Stan on Masters in Business. Actually, I would love to get Stan O'Neill in here. That would be a fascinating conversation because he was really, talk about the middle of the vortex when everything was hitting. That would be quite insane. No, Dave, I'm kidding. <laughs> but that would be just unbelievable to get him in here. I tried to get in touch with him, actually. He didn't, get, he didn't return my you, call. You know who I would love to speak to? One of your mentors and one of my favorite all-time. Bob Farrell, I know. Bob, I was going to say Richard Yamarone, but since you brought up Bob Farrell, let's talk about one of our favorite analysts, one of the mentors that you had at Merrill, a gentleman named Bob Farrell, who put out First time ever in writing, you actually put it, wrote it up, Bob Farrell's 10 Rules for the Market. I thought that was one of the most insightful pieces of here's how to be a better trader, manager, investor I've ever seen. What was it like working with Farrell? Well, you know, we had a um, just a short stint working together because he was uh, in the limelight of his career when I started at Merrill Canada back in the late 90s. He used to write this report Bob did called uh, uh, Theme and Profile Investing, which was um, like truly a, um, uh, like I would say a, practically a Bible. A heartbreaking uh, t- work of staggering t- 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 uh, But But he, he years ago, had uh, decades ago, had uh, written about uh, Bob Farrell's 10 market rules to remember, which are the 10 commandments of how to stay out of trouble. Uh, and that's what's important in the investing business is that sometimes most of the time, Barry, it's what you don't own in the portfolio mm-hmm. as much as what you do own in the portfolio. Uh, Bob Farrell, I w- there, there were three mentors that I had in my 30-year career. Uh, one of them was Warren Justin, at the uh, chief economist of the Bank of Nova Scotia. He's about to retire in February. He brought me on Bay Street on, in 1987. Don Cox, who was the chief strategist at, uh, uh, at Harris Investment Management, which was part of the Bank of Montreal family a firm's out of Chicago. He runs his own consulting firm now. And, and by Bob the way, Farrell, is, is teed and, up to be and, a future guest on the show. And, We've been and and and, uh, and 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 I would say that uh, there's he might he might be about the only genius I truly Don know Cox. well. I say Don is a genius. What about Yamarone? Uh, uh, Yamarone is um, a genius uh, yes. divided by ten. 
and um, He's and, tr- and and Bob Bob Farrell had a profound influence on my career. We actually uh, twice a year uh, we co-host uh, an investor lunch here in New York. One's coming up in mid December. He's still a going concern um, and uh, and putting out uh, research and and doing work and. Uh, a sound of mind. Uh, last time I spoke to him, as he's been at any time since I've known him, uh, he is a true legend. Uh, the operative word is discipline. He is a disciplined uh, strategist mm-hmm. and uh, doesn't get impassioned. Um, he basically uh, lets the markets and the charts and the patterns um, do the dictating. Uh, he's a, He's a rare breed. And um, I've learned a great deal from him. I would love, love, love. Safe travel. I would love, love, love. Dave, cute girl goes by. That's got your name on it. I can't believe you're going to make a face at that. I would love, love, love to get Bob Farrell in here. He's one of these guys that doesn't do media, doesn't speak to the press, just cranks out with a relentless steadiness over half a century, intelligent, common sense, market wisdom. And there are so few people like that. Well, I think what makes him even more special is the fact that he does not make himself available uh, to the to the press. So maybe that adds a little to the mystery. Uh, but um, it also uh, makes his, um, his material uh, that much more exclusive mm-hmm. and therefore that much more important. He is a fascinating guy, and I know in December during lunch you'll you'll put in a good word for us. I'll bring you a doggy bag. <laughs> so we've discussed your early mentors. We've discussed um, uh, the three people who were who were most influential, and we've talked a bit um, about a day in the life of of a economist at Merrill, managing up, managing down. Um, how do you like the transition to the buy side? And and for lay people who may not know the difference, the sell side is a tendency to be uh, transactional, commission-driven. You're selling something to a uh, willing buyer as opposed to the buy side where people give you assets to manage and you go out and buy on their behalf. So mutual funds, hedge funds, RIAs are buy side. Broker-dealers, transactional business are, are, are sell sides. How did you find that transition? Uh, what was that like? Well, I, I've been in the uh, financial business now for uh, 28 years. Uh, I've been a Gluskin chef for six. I would say that I've learned more in the past six years of Gluskin chef as, as you said, a, a buy-side strategist and economist. I've learned more in the past six years than the previous 22 combined. Uh, beca- because I figured out how to uh, produce and communicate a forecast uh, that's meaningful for somebody who manages money for a living. And I want to let me stop you right there. I want to reiterate what Dave said before about this, because a it was so refreshing, and b it was so important. When you're and correct me if I if I sum this up incorrectly. You're doing beautifully so far. <laughs> when you're an economist on a sell side, you make a forecast. Your forecast is out there. It's right or wrong. And if you get it wrong, so what? If you get it right, so what? It doesn't matter. When you're advising people on the buy side, it's not a black and white win or lose forecast. It's a probability matrix with all sorts of shades of gray. 
here's my highest probability forecast along with my this degree of conviction, 60, 70, 80%. If I'm wrong, here's how I'm likely to be wrong, and here's here's the next most likely to scenario. Here's plan C, here's plan D. That's very different than mm, GDP is going to be 3.2% and the Dow is going to be at 18.2%. you are either dead right or dead wrong, and it's meaningless to to an investor is that is that a fair summation okay um yep you you uh you're like the geico guy over my shoulder so um you'd said that well let let me just add this that in my previous you know incarnation i went around the world talking to other portfolio managers at other firms and uh and invariably because uh you're a human being you're going to be wrong and i've had my share of bad calls uh, when you work at a small firm, and we manage $8.5 billion, we're not Merrill Lynch. At Merrill Lynch, you see, if you got a call wrong, um, it really just hurt your pride. When you get a call wrong at a small firm where 90% of your clients are families, mm-hmm. uh, and those are relationships that become personal, I developed some close relationships when I was at Merrill with other portfolio managers. Of course, they're managing money for other people, so you're like, two or three or four degrees. Institutions and then families. You're just, and, you're really yeah. separated. When you're actually, firstly, uh, commandment number one of Gluskin Chef is that we own the same funds that our clients own, so we eat what we kill, we're invested alongside our clients. So when I make a bad call, I feel it in my own portfolio. But not just that, it actually hurts more uh, when you see the impact it could have on your client's portfolio because invariably it becomes a personal relationship. Um most of our clients are um, high net worth. When I was at Merrill or before that at the Bank of Montreal, I would spend most of my time with institutional portfolio managers. And if I ever saw high net worth clients or what they call private clients, retail clients, it would be a thousand of them herded into a ballroom of a hotel. And I would go up and do my dog and pony show. Today, you actually sit right across from them face to face. And these relationships have become personal. So when you're asking about what the primary difference is at a personal level, it's exactly that. It's that when I get a call wrong, uh, I feel it a lot more. Uh, look, when you get these big institutions losing a client, it's rounding error. When we actually lose a client, you'd be amazed uh, at um, at the uh, at the analysis that goes on afterwards, assessing where is it that we went wrong, and how will we make the effort to not make that mistake again. So the bottom line is that today, when I make an error, I take it more personally and I feel it more than I did when I was a sell-side economist. That, that's really fascinating. You know, we had an interesting conversation in the office today, in my office today, about uh, something very similar to what you're talking about, which is the ministers without portfolio the people who are not managing assets or directly working with portfolio managers. Stone throwers. And they're free to say as whatever outrageous thing they want to say. I won't mention him by name on the air, but uh, he's in my slide deck. And someone keeps forecasting a 1987-like crash. He's forecasted every year for the past five years. Last year, he felt the need to step it up a notch. And he said, even worse than a 1987-like crash. And you could say that, you could say that when you're not managing money. You could be out of the market for five years when you're not managing money. But when you're actually dealing with families and 
PMs or managing the money yourself, you can't be in cash for five years. You can't be stone throwers like that. You have to be a participant. And if I'm hearing what you're saying correctly, being that close to the ultimate person whose money is at risk changes the way you view the world, changes the way you operate. Well, you know, just to, you know, maybe round out the discussion, what's different at Gluskin Chef for me uh, regarding our clients is that um, it's uh, more personal than it used to be. And what does that do to impact your thought process, impact how you look at uh, the economy and the market? Well, look, I, I always I always like to believe that uh, that I was on my game. But at this level, at a personal level, when the clients actually are either family members or friends or they become friends, you develop these personal relationships. Um, it means that uh, I have to sharpen my focus that much more. All right, so let's sharpen your focus a little bit and talk about some specific things we didn't get to in the broadcast portion. So we didn't get to talk about the housing market, uh, which is a key part of what's going on. What do you see in the housing market in the U.S., in North America, and globally? Okay, U.S., North America, globally. Well, you know, I guess that... Um Talk, I'm not going to talk about the Mexican housing market because, frankly, it has no bearing on how we invest at Gluskin Chef. Uh, the U.S. housing market looks very interesting to me, notwithstanding the fact that mortgage rates are backing up, courtesy of the bond market adjusting to the Fed um, beginning its uh, tightening phase. But still uh, very historically low, right? Very historically cheap. Well, you know, that's uh, I love the narrative, but, you know, markets and the economy operate at the margin. So it's the change that matters, not the mm -hmm. level and not compared to some historical average. Uh, but uh, what's interesting is that employment in the key uh, first-time home buying cohort uh, is running about 30% faster than it is the rest of the population. So these boomerangs that have been sitting in the basement uh, at Ma and Pa's watching repeats of Breaking Bad are now going out and, um, and getting into the housing market. Interesting situation we have right now is that uh, the trend in household formation, that household formation is running towards one and a half million units. That's big. Housing starts are running at 1.2. Um, you have housing inventories, roughly five months supply, very well balanced market. So I don't think that uh, the home builders, which of, of course we got those great numbers from Pulte and DR Horton in the past 48 hours, but the home builders have corrected fairly hard in the past uh, several weeks, my sense is that they're not priced for the prospect in the next two years of seeing residential construction rise as much as 30%. Uh, story in Canada is a little different. Um, you know, housing is a share of U.S. GDP is at a low level from historical proportion in Canada. You cannot possibly be more overhoused than you are today. Uh, the story in the United States is one of domestic demand, uh, consumer spending, capital spending, commercial construction, which, by the way, is in an uptrend, and housing. Uh, in Canada, it's going to be less about housing and it's going to be more about uh, the strength in U.S. domestic demand. Don't forget Canada ships 20% of its GDP to the U.S. and a 75-cent competitively supercharged currency helping out the beleaguered manufacturing sector and exports. That'll be the story in Canada. You're still getting a, a huge influx of overseas buyers of, of real estate. I, I'm using Vancouver as an example, but is that is that Canadian my, market my, my still? Friend, my friend, my friend. Can, can, the Canadian dollar is at a 25% discount to the U.S. dollar. Huge, Can, Canada. Huge. Canada has this giant for sale sign right in front of it. But Canadian, the, you know, the 
from our perspective, Canada never had the same housing crash that the U.S. had. It it kept going and going. Canadian home prices yeah. are fairly yet. You says yeah, Maroon. Yeah. Canadian home prices are are fairly aggressively priced, aggressively especially pr- in the in the really attractive Barry, cities. Barry, you asked about U.S. investors, mm-hmm. so you're talking about what they look like in U.S. dollars, mm-hmm. not Canadian dollars. Let me no, just, no. What let, I'm asking is, are overseas buyers snapping up, still snapping but, up all of these? Canadian- I mean, most of the buying, most of the buying in Vancouver mm-hmm. is coming out of China. Yes, absolutely. And yes, you are getting U.S. buying into Canada. Canada is C H E A P for a U.S. based investor. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, Yamaron. Yeah, you were jumping out of your chair. You disagree with Dave's take on housing? I've disagreed with Dave. And I've been wrong on that part for a good number of, of right. What's an a overwhelming majority of, of those arguments, right? Um, for for um, well over a decade, but you know, I see the housing is a little different. You know, all this we have right now, multi units. You're on a panel again, Dave. I didn't. Multi units are are, are soaring uh, because people cannot afford to buy a home. Rentals way up. So the boomerang kids leaving their parents' basement are they first time home buyers? No. Or are they renters? They're renting and rent. If they're lucky. Rental units of five or more uh, construction of new new construction mm-hmm. of five or more units. Multifamily are the highest since 1986. Wow, that's right? a big compared number. to something that if if you break if you pull out of that housing start number, you pull out the single family units. Very different. I won't even f- ask him about copper oil because we'll all want to commit suicide afterwards. Well, so. look, I'll say this much: the the you know we talked. But the world the, we doesn't t- revolve we, around. We, copper. We, we talked around. We talked. We talked about um, Bob Farrell. Rule number one was uh, everything reverts to the mean, at least ratios. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually that means that you break through the mean in both directions. When we got up to almost a seventy percent home ownership rate back at the peaks, mm-hmm. uh, that was one extreme. Now we've gone to the other extreme. We're pretty well at, at historic lows in the home ownership rate in the U.S. I'm not. Yes, I, I am really not in the business. I've never made it uh, a business to take the most recent experience and superimpose it into the future. Uh, my sense is that quite right. Um, rental construction has been very strong. It's been uh, the, the rental demand. That's been the big story. Uh, but um, we have very tight uh, apartment vacancy rates. Rents, one of the reasons why core service inflation is as strong as it's been is because of rents. So the rent home price ratio is altered in a certain respect. Mm-hmm. We are starting to get income growth. And I'm making this point that the key first-time home buyer category, 25 to 34-year-olds, their growth of employment in the past year is running 30, not 13, 30% faster than it is for the rest of the population. Now, there are lags involved, but with a lag, they will form themselves into homeowner household units. And I think that is going to be the next leg of the housing market. Now, I want to give you props about that because not this summer, the previous summer, you in a presentation at Camp Kotak up in Maine talked about the building demand for for employees and the future wage push, which was a couple of quarters away, and year over year we see up 2.5% in U.S. wages. You talked about that before anybody else was speaking about it, and you got it right. You said it's inevitable that we're going to start to see wage pressures. You can't have this sort of GDP activity and this tight labor market without seeing that sort of shift. 
that plays into that first-time home buyers. What does that That's mean right. going forward for the economy? Well, look, it's a uh, <laughs> it's a bit of a double-edged sword because for the equity market will have to get used to living with uh, with with probably lower profit margins. Doesn't mean that the market's going down, but that'll be a constraint because um, there's only two sources of income in the economy: the government doesn't create income and taxes it. Uh, but there's corporate income and then there's labor income. Yeah, labor income is picking up across almost every measure. This mm-hmm. is actually a debate, if you remember at Camp Kotak with yes. me and F- Philippa Dunn, who, uh, who absolutely love, and I think that she is the resident labor Lissio market Report, expert. absolutely. That's right. Uh, you know, and um, what I'll say is what I was focusing on back then was uh, this uh, one arcane statistic called the quit rate mm-hmm. uh, that we know that Alan Greenspan had looked at repeatedly, like, 20 and 30 years ago, which is the percentage of the unemployed that are quitting their jobs voluntarily in search of greener pastures elsewhere. It's basically what I call uh, the take this job and shove it index. Mm -hmm. And it's a uh, reflection to some extent of worker uh, insecurity or alternatively worker confidence. You see, everybody focuses on- So it's a sentiment index. Everybody focuses on the the unemployment rate and classic measures of tightness in the labor market, everybody was always saying, well, the unemployment rate's gone from 10% to 5%. No matter what measure you want to use, they've all come down rather significantly, even mm. the broader measures. Use and six. yet up until recently, there hasn't been a big wage response because what these classic measures of resource um, uh, utilization, uh, utilization uh, uh, capacity in the labor market, they don't show is how comfortable you are going to your boss asking for a raise. It doesn't measure insecurity. What's happening is that this quit rate, and it went up again in the last month. Rich, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's almost a 10%. The quit rate is rising. And when I was having that debate a year ago, I was saying the quit rate is rising. That actually is the best leading indicator for wages. But you see, the question, well, the question, like everything else, is always the lags. And how long does it take for the information that the working class has uh better prospects uh, than they actually think. You see, the, the labor market is not like commodities and it's not like stocks or bonds. You're talking about people. And so at what point do people start to realize that, hey, my market for labor is actually tighter. I actually have the confidence now to go to my boss and ask for a raise. So the quit rate is actually a great, when you plot the quit rate against wage growth, mm-hmm. you might as well plot income and consumption but the lags were longer this time around. What so, about- we are, so we are actually now starting to see more discernible signs. Look, bottom line, look at the NFIB index that just came out, the small business index. And you got that the net share of companies saying they're going to raise compensation in the next six months at its highest level for the cycle. So one of the metrics that I used to track um, was the JOLTS index. It's the job opening, labor turnover whatever survey survey and um how how parallel is that to um your take this job and shove an index in terms of what we're seeing uh employee confidence uh availability of better jobs wage wage pressures well how do you contextualize that look the the results so for example you said before that we quotes created a net 271,000 jobs uh, say in the month of uh, October. Mm-hmm. What's missing in that comment is that we destroyed millions of jobs 
and we created millions of jobs. Right. That's the and then that number was 271. Absolutely. So what you're missing is the churning that goes uh, below the surface of that headline number. So the jolts number is valuable because it tells you what that churning lo- looks like. How many people are actually quitting their jobs? How many people are getting fired from their jobs? How many people are getting hired? So it gives you, um, you know, that uh, the churning. So we know, for example, that f- through the jolts numbers, that most of the improvement in the labor market this cycle did not come from new hires as much as it came from a lack of firing. Mm-hmm. Uh, companies have begun to hoard labor. The firing rate is extremely low, by the way, corroborated uh, by what we're seeing in the jobless claim numbers. Uh, what I always like to look at um, was always the, um, uh, the, 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 the number of, uh, of people that, um, uh, that are unemployed uh, normalized by uh, the number of new hires. And that was telling me actually that taking out all the other noise and adjusting for the labor force, that the labor market was tightening uh, significantly. Mm-hmm. The question all along was, which nobody, I mean, people, and actually, if you take a look at what my, the title of my, of my employment report last week was, uh, you know, the, the Phillips curve comes back from the grave, mm-hmm. uh, maybe apropos because of Halloween, that people were throwing out the Phillips curve uh, as, a, as, a, as something you could hang your hat on. All that separated the tightening of labor market conditions to the wage rate were the lags and, and, and basically uh, the level of worker insecurity uh, that existed through most of the cycle, we seem to be shedding uh, those fears. The, 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 the proletariat seems to be a little more emboldened right now. And so wages are now with a longer lag starting to respond. So you alluded to, but we didn't talk about the um, change in the labor force participation rate. Is that a secular factor that we've been losing people for demographic and global trade reasons, or is there something more significant there? No, there's look, there's two things. There's the uh, the first of the boomers turned 65 in 2011, and that's going to be real- reality for decades, and so there's a demographic element to it. Secondarily, we've created through municipal, state, federal benefits um, uh, a whole myriad uh, of incentives for people to leave the labor force um, where uh, you get paid uh, very well not to work. How uh, well do you get paid not to work? I mean, it, it is some money there, but it's not like earning a real living. Can you really live comfortably on on disability? And- if you add up, if you add up everything, I think that the Cato Institute uh, did a report. All right, so that's strike one. But keep going. Uh, but but there's been other uh, scholarly research showing that the incentive systems, whether it's not just disability, but uh, Medicare benefits and childcare benefits, and look, you go back to work these days, Barry, and you give up a lot of benefits. And uh, some of the numbers I've seen are as high as $40,000. Like you've really got to bid up the wages to get people to come back in the labor market. And that's why it doesn't happen. Now, maybe you'll start to get, maybe if the wage rate starts to come back, which it looks like it's happening, the participation rate starts to make a comeback and the unemployment rate stops going down. I think that's a reasonable premise. Um, but there's no question. And whether you agree with the Cato Institute or not, they did show that I think in 38 states, you make more by tapping all the benefits at all levels of government than you do uh, as a starting salary as an admin assistant. Hmm. 38 states. So, look, you can say the Cato Institute, they have a certain axe to grind. Um, but, you know, unless you've Did done I your, say that? I certainly implied it. You implied it, but unless you've done your own research, you know, it's... But, but there's been other... 
Um, there, there's been other analysis done that's come to similar conclusions. Uh, I know with that, disability that got, you could really crank. If you're on full disability, you can really crank up the, don't the forget, total dollars. Don't forget in 2013 we had a fairly significant increase in tax rates mm-hmm. on income. The reality is this, basic economics, the more you tax, the less supply you'll get. You tax work, you'll get less work. Yeah, but these, so, so those there's are a, marginal there's changes. A, you know, you're telling yeah. me someone's not going to take a starting job because their their capital gains tax went up to 23% from 15? That's a cap gains tax. The, the marginal increase, just like the marginal decrease, uh, is someone going to say, well, you know, I used to be taxed at 36, but now it's 38, I'm not going to start a new job? I've always thought that behavioral aspect of it was wildly overstated. So, Barry, you asked the question and you answered it yourself. So, what? What's your? Perspective? I just well, I'm trying to give you an answer, but you're answering it yourself. The answer is that it's mostly structural, largely demographic, largely related to uh, you know. Look at if you don't like my answer, get Larry Lindsay on here. He gave a presentation at this. I saw his presentation two years ago. Get Peter Bookfer on here and get Larry Lindsay to Peter show you just the paper. By, by the so way. get him to show you the presentation. Yeah, I mean, you'll get po- Peter. Well, so, yeah, I mean, you were making faces. So, what's your uh, impression on that? So, well, hold on. Uh, you can't conduct an interview by cutting off the person you're asking, okay? I think that's... That's, that's where you're wrong. We, I can and I did. Ask, okay, well, you asked, Well, yeah, first you asked a question, then you answered it yourself. Right. So, so give me the full it's answer. A good thing, it's a good thing we're friends. <laughs> the answer is that it's mostly structural. There. Mostly structural mostly changes structural. is what's and, limiting... And uh, if you actually take a look at, at the... And actually, the beauty of the household survey is it does show you the discouraged workers, mm-hmm. and they've been going down. So it's The not number the, of discouraged workers has been going down. Didn't I just say that? I'm repeating it for people who didn't understand. Ah, okay. So let, I, let's talk about it, U6 because we haven't gotten there. Yeah. Uh, last report, under 10% for the first time in who knows how long. How long, Yami? Since 09. 09. That's a huge drop because people have been screaming about, well, you know, there's still a lot of people who want to work, but they're discouraged. Under 10%, 9 point something. Yep. Look look, look at, the, at, the, at, at the narrower measures, like the U1 and U2 is down to 2.5%. Mm-hmm. Barry. We can uh, slice this and dice this a million ways. The labor market is tight, and it's tightening. And the only thing that separated the tightening to wage growth was the level of worker insecurity, which is measured by the quit rate, which is going up. So workers are starting to feel emboldened. If you go to the conference board, Consumer Confidence Survey, and you see the percentage of people expecting their income to go up in the next year, that ratio is going up. If you go to the National Federation of Independent Business, to their survey showing companies' willingness to start to pay people more money, that ratio is going up. So the stars are aligning that in the coming year, wage growth is going to be accelerating. The question really is going to be by how much. So what does that mean for future inflation? Is the Fed behind the curve? Are they in danger 12 months from now of not recognizing this? Tell me what this wage pressure is going to mean one year from now. Well, I I, I never believed that uh, uh, that wages lead inflation. Um, my sense is that there's going to be offsetting forces from the lagged impact of the strong dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, the weakness in commodity prices is going to ensure that 40% of the CPI that is goods-oriented will remain very low or maybe in mild deflation. I think we will continue to see service sector inflation. Uh, my sense is that you know inflation is zero right now. A year from now, I think it'll be one and a half to two percent. Is that will the wow. Fed be behind the curve? 
That's well, a big one, increase. My friend, one and a half to two percent is like Nirvana. I mean, don't forget, there's the Fed wants it at two, and then there's some on the left side of the equation that want it towards three. Well, I'm not looking at the level. I'm looking at the marginal change. Uh, well, don't forget that a lot of the reason why we're at zero is because of commodity prices. Unless you think oil is mm -hmm. going to go down another 50% from here, we're not going to get that out of thrust. I think oil is going to be stuck in a range between 40 and 60. So then what happens is that, and then the, the dollar impact will dissipate over time. Goods inflation will no longer be minus four. It'll be zero. Mm -hmm. uh, core service sector inflation probably gets up towards 3%, put it in the martini shaker, and it comes out to roughly one and a half, two 2% underlying inflation. And uh, yeah, I guess if you're long duration bonds, you're not going to like to hear that story, but it actually isn't a bad overall story for the economy. You're, you're telling a Goldilocks scenario of full employment, rising wages, low inflation. Well, I don't like Goldilocks because the story also had three bears. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm one of them. That's right. He's still, one of the bears are, are, are still in here. All right. We touched on housing. We touched on inflation. Um, uh, during the panel discussion in uh, in Miami, you described what you thought was going on at the Federal Reserve in great detail, but with a very abbreviated answer because there were four people on the panel. I want to delve back into that. Let's talk a little bit about Janet Yellen and what's going on at the Fed and what's the thought process here. I know we briefly touched on it. But you gave an answer as to uh, what you see over the next 12 months. Is it is it every third meeting? Tell me what you see happening uh, over the next 12 months. Assume we get a quarter point increase yeah. December. What does 2016 look like from the data-dependent Fed's perspective? My sense is that uh, they'll probably skip every other meeting. Like, in other words, could I see them going 100 basis points next year? Once a quarter, in other words. I could see that. Mm -hmm. and, and and then I, I you know and, and then you know, we'll see what happens going forward. You, when you're asking about being behind the curve, it's always answer that uh, question uh, through the rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I would say that um, you know the the tips break even levels will give you some indication. Uh, the steepness of the yield curve will give you some indication. Commodity prices will give you some indication. Uh, the dollar will give you some indication. The whole range of variables will tell you if the Fed is behind the curve. Classically, if you go through a bare steepener of the yield curve, that would be a classic sign that the Fed is behind the curve, and we're not there. What do you think is the most hated sector of the market these days? Oh, the most hated sector of the market. Well, I would say that the part of uh, the world that is most out of favor right now is my beloved country, Canada. Mm -hmm. I've never seen the Canadian banks uh, with such a huge short position by the U.S. hedge funds. I've never seen, I can't pick up a newspaper and not hear about uh, um, how energy will drag Canada into a... Uh, pernicious and perennial recession, how housing is dramatically overvalued and destined for a collapse. Um, I would say that um, the last time I remember the view on Canada, and I think it's way overdone, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, the last time I had the, the, the view on Canada was this negative. I think you'd have to go back to the early to mid-90s when Canada was truly a fiscal basket case. Uh, we almost had a failed auction in 1995. And of course, we had the Quebec referendum, so we had the political uncertainty. Um, but Canada right now, standalone, um, if you're a value investor uh, looking for a turnaround situation, uh, Canada looks uh, very good to me right now. You like Canada here and you think that's a uh, 
it's a, a viable con- trade I, 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 or I, an investment. I, I say that it is a, um, you know, oh, if, if the. Canada, I love the baritone. Oh, my native land. That is Richie Amarone on Canadian vocals. Well, I, I think Canada. I, I think Canada is a uh, is going to be, uh, by definition, uh, an upside surprise. Yes. So that that assumes that uh, no major disruption. Oil firms continues to uh, look. Uh, you know what? The, the the key once again, as I said before, uh, you know the, the the Saudis told the shale guys in the U.S. You are the swing producer. When I see exploration and drilling activity down 60% of the U.S. year over year, Huge. and again, well, and there's lags, people may be surprised that a year from now we're, we're more in a $50, $60 range than $40, 50 dollar will respond in kind. Uh, there'll be a lagged impact on all these concerns on energy credits regarding the Canadian banks. Um, and uh, don't forget that, um, you know, this new liberal government uh, has questioned... Trudeau. That's right, uh, Justin Trudeau, but... Not about him, but about his, his economics team mm-hmm. and the choice of Bill Murnau as finance minister, which surprising. is the re- well, I'm no, it's not surprising. It's just very to positive. us Americans, it's a surprise. Well, you know, I don't even know if Americans even knew who he was. That's uh, why it's most, so surprising. Most, most Americans, surprise. most Americans don't even know that Ottawa's the capital. Uh, so wait, it's uh, not Toronto. <laughs> there you so go. So you're you you because when we first were talking about Trudeau getting elected, I know you were not enthralled with that. But this seems fairly constructive that uh, you like the finance minister. Well, look, I'm not going to disclose publicly how I voted, but I will say that out of the three parties, <laughs> out of the three parties, the Liberals did have the most pro-growth fiscal plan. Really? That's kind of surprising. Uh, well, I thought you read my daily. I do read your daily. It's a blur after he 10 years. He just doesn't years. read it daily. <laughs> <laughs> after 10 years of it, it's yeah. kind of a blur. So it takes some of the pressure off the bank. Not only do I read your daily, but let me remind you that I republished your entire analysis of the Canadian election on the big picture because I thought it was so strong. Do you recall that conversation? That's why we're moving this conversation into let's discuss the minister appointment. Uh, I, um, am for, I am forever indebted. I think that he's appointed a strong... <laughs> economics team Uh, it's one of these situations where i think that uh you know look the liberals got elected in 1993 on on almost a a a socialist manifesto which never saw the light of day you couldn't have sold the story that uh, jean cratchit and paul martin would have been the fiscal dragon slayers that would have Mm -hmm. they would have been the duo uh that made canada the poster child for fiscal integrity so uh what i will say is that canada the federal government has a 31% debt to GDP ratio. The median o- the median OECD is 80%. They're really running on a platform of roughly $5 billion deficits annually for the next four years. I actually put on my report, they should be running $25 billion deficits. And, and they could do that and not even spin the dial on the debt to GDP ratio. Completely stimulative. And this is like I was saying before. Deficits. This is what I was saying before. We've had a detonation in the energy capital stock. It's thrown Alberta into a terrible recession. And this is where public sector infrastructure spending is really going to pack a powerful punch. They should actually do more. It's what I told Barack Obama he should have done, of course, you know, back in 2009. Um, let me let me get that for you. Hold on. Drop his name over here. That, uh, that actually... Um, so you're deep uh, down inside had... a Keynesian when it comes to it. Well, what does that mean about being a Keynesian? That during a recession, the government steps in to make up the shortfall in gross You can call demands. it Keynesian or you can call it just common sense. Uh, 
I don't disagree with you. You I either think you're right. look. I am not. Look, I'll tell you right now. I I am not a Tea Party advocate. I am not a libertarian. I am a right. I'm a conservative. I'm a, I'm a John Kasich type of conservative. Uh, uh, you could say liberal on social issues and conservative on economic issues. But it's foolhardy and actually dangerous policy uh, to think that you're going to run the same fiscal stature throughout the business cycle irrespective of the negative shocks that come our way. How can you not respond? Your job, okay, this is not okay, bad. Not, the United States never responded. Yeah, well, uh, in and fact, it Europe, did, it did, well, it did respond. It didn't respond Fis- enough. Fiscally. It didn't respond enough. Look, this is Monday morning quarterbacking, and I would say to the federal government in Ottawa, don't make the same mistake. We have had a huge negative uh, shock to the economy from the energy sector, and Canada is, look, when it's not, maybe it's, uh, not quite right of center. It's maybe just uh, dead center under the Harper government. It was more right of center than it's been historically. Um, but there is a public-private partnership in Canada. And Canada, the Canadian government, has tremendous capacity to borrow money at historically low interest rates, and not for program spending or welfare, but for productivity-enhancing uh, infrastructure spending, which will have a long-term payback if it's successful in terms of boosting the long-term growth potential of the country, you will get on the right side of the Laffer curve and actually end up garnering more revenues down the road. All right. We've been speaking with Dave Rosenberg. He is the chief economist and market strategist at Gluskin Chef in Toronto, Canada. If you enjoy these conversations, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes, and you'll see all of our previous chats with various notable folks. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Check out my blog on at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Dave, are you going to start tweeting? I know you just occasionally have someone in your office that looks like tweet something out for you. But why don't we get you on Twitter? Uh, Well, once again, you just have to uh, get on the Gluskin Chef uh, website, and uh, it's all there for the viewing. There it is. Uh, I want to thank my engineer, Reggie, my producer, Charlie Vollmer, my head of research, Michael Batnick. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.